0: Welcome to the Austrian American History Podcast, a podcast featuring interviews with scholars relating to history, politics, economics, law, and cultural studies. I am your host, Patrick Shank, and I'm the public historian for the Botts-Deeper Foundation.
1: So today on the podcast, we have Christina Poson. Christina earned her PhD in history at the College of William & Mary She was a 2015 Basieber Fellow and is the current editor of the new Open Access Journal of Austrian-American History. Her dissertation, Migrant Nation Builders, the Development of Austria-Hungary's National Projects in the United States, 1880s to 1920s, explores the relationship between transatlantic migration, migrant identities, and the dissolving of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Hello, Christina. Thank you for being on the podcast. It is a pleasure to have you.
2: Thanks, Patrick.
1: I guess just to jump right into it, um, how did you come to study Austrian American history, and in particular, transatlantic migration?
2: I came to my dissertation project primarily through taking courses in the comparative and transnational history program at William & Mary. Uh, Even though I had gone there to study American history, all of these comparative and transnational courses really inspired me to look outside the borders of the United States, in gaining a fuller picture for topics that had been studied pretty much from a domestic concept. And I went to Central Europe right after I completed the master's program to teach English in Hungary, and it was while I was there poking around the archives from the Habsburg Empire that I came to my current topic.
1: Sounds like a pretty exciting journey to get there. Kind of building off that, I know you've conducted research in the United States and, like, Washington and other archives, but also in Vienna and Budapest. What was some of the most interesting or surprising things you found in the records either here or over in Europe?
2: One of the things that really shocked me was how much information you can find about the United States in foreign archives. And on the one hand, we really expect this for things like the foreign ministry files that you would have a lot of consular records, Uh, or notes about things happening in the United States where migrants from Austria-Hungary are going. But the volume of things that you could learn about U.S. history reading through archival files in Vienna and Budapest was still a shock to me, especially in files for their domestic ministries. And so the Ministry of Agriculture, for example, and the Interior Ministry files uh, in Vienna, all had tremendous amounts of information about U.S. issues.
1: That's really surprising. So if it was the agriculture dealing with similar problems in the United States or just general files?
2: So domestic ministries in Austria-Hungary were also interested in issues of migration. Departments like the Ministry of Agriculture would be interested, in particular, with ways to draw migrants who had gone to the United States back to Austria-Hungary to work as farmers, whereas departments like the War Ministry were always concerned with making sure that citizens were fulfilling their military requirements before they went abroad and being able to apprehend people who returned who hadn't fulfilled those kinds of things. So in addition to the Foreign Ministry, domestic ministry files also were really important for my research.
1: That's really cool. You wouldn't think a They'd be that detailed for United States records. So I guess kind of building off the migration aspect of your um, dissertation, how was migration and identity different in multi-ethnic states like Austria-Hungary compared to other places in Europe that really centered around one ethnic group?
2: Historians have studied for a long time the way that the concepts of ethnicity are kind of constructed. Um, But oftentimes, scholarly books were coming up with good theories to explain nation building for coalescing nation states like Italy. But the picture was still a little cloudy to me about an eventually splintering state like Austria-Hungary. So using the literature on places like Italy, I wanted to look at how the nation building process works for places that in the long run um, seems to be falling apart rather than places that were coming together.
1: Did you find a major difference in how these migrants saw themselves compared to other nations, or?
2: What you find in the United States is that for individuals coming from both coalescing nation states and multi-ethnic empires, identities are a lot more fluid and flexible than we think about in the modern period. And so in much the same way that italian migrants might think of themselves primarily as sicilians or as catholics or as coming from their specific village Um, so too migrants from austria hungary might think of themselves primarily as calvinists or as someone from transylvania or the specific county they're from and that these national identities aren't necessarily the primary form of identification for every person
1: that's really interesting so I guess also then once they come to the United States, are these immigrants like how are they seeking to assimilate to the United States culture but at the same time, you know, maintaining their heritage from whether it be an Austrian Hungarian heritage or like their specific regional heritage?
2: That's a great question. One of the things that migrants do really actively upon their arrival in the United States is start lots of organizations and clubs. Some of these are very practical in purpose like benefit societies in case of injury or death which are particularly important for migrants who are working in dangerous industrial jobs but there's also a flourishing of migrant newspapers churches and also clubs that are devoted to more leisure type activities and even national causes and so these kinds of things really not only retain but promote a specific cultural heritage for migrants and sometimes pairs them in ways that we would find surprising so um there are dozens of cases of churches being founded between migrants who speak different languages who might have a joint service or have two different services in the same day but decide to found a single church together there are is also a big turning point around World War I with migrants really starting to engage a lot in political activism. And this is really important because during the war, various leaders among different linguistic groups, among the Austro-Hungarian immigrant community sees this as an opportunity to change the fate of what will happen with Austria-Hungary after the war if it loses. And so we see migrants then engaging in direct diplomacy efforts to try to uh, change the outcome.
1: So then, I guess kind of building off of that too then, with, with the outbreak of World War One, how did that affect the actual migration, like in terms of the United States' policy towards accepting these immigrants? And then... Also, did the breakup affect how migrants understood themselves, so it no longer are they that empire, or multi-ethnic. Now they are individual nations and uh, ethnic groups defined by their states.
2: The end of the war and the dissolution of Austria-Hungary has a huge impact on transatlantic migration, especially when you pair it with the restrictive immigration quotas and laws that the United States put in in 1921 and 1924. These two things happening at nearly the same time completely changes the picture for migration. So just as ships start crossing the Atlantic again after the peace treaties have been signed, the United States is implementing more and more restrictive legislation. And that legislation is based on migrants' quote national origins, which means what ethnic group they're coming from. This gets really complicated though, when you have new borders in Eastern Europe and attempts to kind of put a number for each of Austria-Hungary's ethnic groups onto new states that didn't exist before. And so the portion of the quota that will go to each new country will depend on migrants who come from these areas in 1890, and those kinds of identities and geographic markers even don't really match up.
1: So it's definitely a bit of a chaos, kind of, once this this change happens in terms of immigrants trying to come over.
2: Absolutely, and there's also kind of an open admission in Congress that these numbers are somewhat a fiction, but they decide to go with them anyway because their goal is immigration restriction at any cost, regardless of whether the numbers for Slovaks, Czechs, Hungarians, Germans, Austrian-Germans are accurate or not.
1: It's really fascinating. So I guess jumping back a bit in the timeline, back to the when the Austrian-Hungarian Empire was still in force, um, I know in one of your papers you mentioned that the government would still be involved in their citizens' lives even after they migrated to America. I'm just kind of curious, what were some of the ways they try to do so? And then what, if any, was a reaction from the U.S. government in like this foreign government's involvement in their own domestic affairs?
2: Despite its rather small consular service, Austria-Hungary tries to continue to play a really active role in migrants' lives. One of the ways that they do this is through financing of different projects and organizations in the United States. So there are several newspapers, for example, that receive stipends from the government, um, from the foreign ministry. The Austro-Hungarian government also sets up or contracts with a series of immigrant wayhouses in New York City. And these are places that would welcome migrants for their first night in New York after arriving in Ellis Island or be the place where they spent the night before they got on a ship in New York to go back home. And so three of these homes, at least in New York City get direct funding from the Austro-Hungarian foreign ministry to function. Beyond that, there are several Austro-Hungarian officials who come on visits to the United States. There are consular offices not only in Washington and New York, but also in cities like Pittsburgh and Chicago and other major areas that drew migrants from Austria-Hungary. And there are some attempts at um, calling Austro-Hungarian migrants home to fight for the homeland when World War I breaks out.
1: And so was there any kind of reaction from the United States with them funding newspapers and that kind of stuff?
2: Austro-Hungarian officials try to be very careful to make sure that the initiatives they're supporting are not things that are going to anger the U.S. government. And so what they will do often is work through a private nonprofit type agency or work through churches rather than direct governmental offices being in charge of initiatives that they want to hold in the United States. So, for example, um, funding churches and the activities that they pursue, the United States government tends to consider uh, okay because of the separation of church and state, whereas uh, if it were to be projects that were happening sort of at U.S. ambassador and consular locations, those would draw some anger from the American government. The American government does get a little frustrated when officials in Austria-Hungary try to curb emigration, and they see this as a potential threat to the labor supply. This is in the early 1900s before restriction really becomes the main game in the United States, and so those kinds of things can cause a little bit of conflict between the two countries.
1: It's fascinating. Um, I guess kind of building off that then too, you mentioned earlier in talking about the um, foreign government uh, and papers found in like Austria. Because it is a transatlantic history, is there a lot of movement back from immigrants who come to the United States, they move back to Austria-Hungary? And if so, like how is that handled by the different governments in terms of this constant movement of people?
2: You're absolutely right that there's a ton of back and forth going on here. Estimates say that up to 40% of migrants in some cases from Austria-Hungary end up returning after some period in the United States. And so this constant back and forth is just the reality of the way that migration goes, but sometimes it does cause complications. Among the main points of confusion with people going back and forth are whether migrants have completed their mandatory, male migrants have completed their mandatory military service to Austria-Hungary before they go to the United States, and also who is a citizen of which country. Many migrants choose to remain citizens of Austria-Hungary while others will take out their first papers and declare their intention to become a U.S. citizen. One of the things that gets tricky for migrants who take out first papers but don't complete the citizenship process formally yet is that they want to claim some of the benefits of American citizenship that aren't technically available to them yet.
1: Okay. So, it does seem like there's a huge problem in terms of this back and forth creates problems for the governments and mainly it's around citizenship and how to deal with the movement.
2: Right. These are the kinds of reasons that migrants from Austria-Hungary, as well as from other places, tend to declare U.S. citizenship in huge numbers at the outbreak of World War I, and these, resolving this kinds of confusion becomes really important to a lot of people.
1: Mm-hmm, definitely. So I guess kind of a few wrapping up kind of questions to move forward with. Um, I guess, what are some of like, the important takeaways you found from this study and are there anything that really resonates in today's society that you found in studying this period in uh, migration?
2: One of the things that I found is that it's really worthwhile for scholars who are studying migrants to the United States to look in the archives of their home countries. Uh, I already talked about this a little earlier on, that the abundance of information that's available about U.S. history in foreign archives is a huge opportunity to bring new perspectives into the historical conversation. There are also a lot of implications for a lot of the debates about migration that are happening today. One of the big ironies of the negative attitude toward immigration in a lot of Central Europe right now is that these are countries that really actively took part in transatlantic, migration to the United States, to Canada, to Central and South America. And so it's difficult to understand sometimes the real resistance to immigration when these countries have such powerful histories of immigration themselves.
1: Yeah, that's a bit ironic in today's society. But that's really fascinating. Um, I guess kind of one kind of finishing up question is, I know you've just recently defended your dissertation. And um, I was kind of curious, what do you have planned next for this research? And is there any other future project that you kind of want to explore that was you didn't get it to explore really in your dissertation?
2: Yeah, obviously, I'm starting out on the long and difficult process of revising my dissertation into a book manuscript. But one of the things I'd really like to do in addition to that is take a look, uh, perhaps in an article at what happens when migrants from Austria-Hungary encounter the American public school system. And one of the reasons that I'm so fascinated by this, even though it didn't fit well into uh, the parameters of the dissertation itself, is that there are tons and tons and tons of Austro-Hungarian archival files talking about Education in the United States and the way that it threatens the Austria Hungarian government's goals. And so there are big efforts, especially among Catholics from Austria Hungary, to support parochial schools in the United States, which become pretty controversial with local school authorities, um, state level authorities. white reformers in the United States who really see public education as a way to assimilate immigrants. And so this is one place that I'd really like to continue my research outside of the topic of the book manuscript
1: itself. Mm -hmm. Definitely. That sounds really interesting. So it was almost like a way for the immigrants to maintain their own kind of regional culture and learning and um, education system in the United States, and there was a lot of pushback against that, pretty much it sounds like.
2: Yeah, and also a way to continue to practice Catholicism the way that they wanted to, rather than the way that the American Catholic Church wanted them to.
1: That's really interesting. Well, I look forward to reading that. Then I you want to say thank you again for ha- joining us, it was a pleasure. I definitely learned a lot. Um, so thank you for uh, joining us on the podcast.
2: Thank you.
0: The Austrian American History Podcast is produced by the bott Institute for Austrian American Studies, which seeks to promote an understanding of the historic relationship between the United States and Austria, including Capsburg, Austria. The Institute also awards fellowships and grants for academic research and publishes the Journal of Austrian American History. To find out more, visit www.bottsteeper.org or like us on Facebook at the bott Foundation. Music by the Underscore Orchestra under Creative Commons BY-NC-SA license. Editing by Patrick Shank.